The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading down to the Sunshine State where marine biologist Joe Hayes has returned from the Amazon with the infamous Gillman, still alive after his previous encounter with American marine biologists, now with the Gillman in captivity as the hot new attraction at the Ocean Harbor Oceanarium. Professor Cleet Ferguson and ichthyology student Helen Dobson begin to observe, study, and even attempt communication with him. But they soon learn that they can take the creature out of the Black Lagoon, but they can't take the Black Lagoon out of the creature. Move over, Shamu. It's time for Revenge of the Creature. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monsters series. Today we're talking about 1955's Revenge of the Creature. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and aquatic animal wrangler monster, Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Hey, how's it going, Dan? I just got back from Jacksonville. And let me tell you there, the exhibits, yeah, you sure get your money's worth. Well, the Creature from the Black Lagoon was a box office smash, and so a sequel was all but guaranteed. In fact, Universal had already begun preparing for one before the first one had even been released. Of course, when when developing the original Creature film, producer William Allen knew that there was potential for a sequel and intentionally left the ending ambiguous for that reason. And if you remember from our previous discussion in our last episode, his original idea for Creature borrowed nearly the entire plot of King Kong, complete with the Gill Man being captured and brought back to civilization to be put on display. So once a sequel was guaranteed, its plot was pretty much a no-brainer. Once again, utilizing 3D technology, probably the last Universal film to do so before the gimmick faded out in 1956, Revenge of the Creature is, in my opinion, less ambitious than its predecessor from a technical standpoint anyway, and it relies more on the popular popular tropes of the era, but the Gilman's subtle new design looks fantastic and I enjoyed that the film takes some real swings thematically as the evolutionary connection between man and fish is explored a little further. How did you feel about this one, Mike? Were you familiar with Revenge of the Creature or was this your first time? So I had definitely seen this movie before. I think I might have even seen this more than the original movie because not only is this Revenge of the Creature, but it's also Jaws 3, Jurassic yep. <laughs> Park, Westworld, take your pick, and 
I just love it. Every time I watch this movie, I think of all those other movies and how much fun this idea is about the attraction fighting back or whatever. Like, it's put best in Jurassic Park. When the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. And it's really cool. And it's even a stronger Jaws connection because, you know, of all the Jaws talk we had last episode and now this Jaws 3 connection. This is the plot to Jaws 3. Jaws goes to SeaWorld and goes nuts and starts eating people. Like, it's basically the same thing. There's even that scene when they're trying to knock him out of his coma. So I always have a lot of fun with this one, even though I recognize that it's a little cheaper, it's a little faster, a little looser. You know, it's kind of probably a little more played for laughs at times. It's got a bit of a different tone going. It's not just straight horror, but the horror's there. But there's more fun here. I like how it is the ultimate fish out of water. That always plays well with the monsters. You know, we talked about how, like, when Dracula goes to Narlins and all that kind of stuff, that's fun too. So it feels like they really got kind of a formula as to, like, where they should take an idea next. And this felt like the right step for the creature. So I like Revenge of the Creature. I think there's a lot of fun stuff in it. But I do think that the narrative here is a little bit thin for a full feature. If you were to split King Kong between its jungle section and its New York section, like the New York section is a lot shorter, right? That's like the third act of the movie. And here it feels like they're trying to take the third act of this creature story and stretch it out to, you know, I think 80 minutes or something like that. This to me kind of feels like what happened with James Bond from Casino Royale to Quantum of Solace. I think I've mentioned on the show before that I'm a Bond fan. And I think that that's a perfect analogy because while I don't think Quantum of Solace is a great movie on its own, it is kind of a cool second part to Casino Royale. And if you were to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon and then follow it up with Revenge of the Creature, you kind of got that full King Kong arc. It feels a little bit more complete. I think it's trying to do more than the material really allows for. You know, there is a lot of fun stuff in here. You pointed out the similarities to Jaws 3. It's also in 3D, just like Jaws 3 was. Speaking of Jaws again, there's this one shot we'll talk about later. Towards the end, there's a shot of our heroine like clinging to a buoy and she gets pulled down into the water and I'm thinking this is the opening scene to Jaws. I think the creature looks great. The eyes are a little bit different. I think I like the old eyes better, but I you know, I think they made changes to the eyes to make it easier to see out of them. Otherwise, the creature is pretty much the same as before. We see a little more air bubbles coming out of his head. I don't know if you noticed that. Hard not to notice that, unfortunately. I feel like that was just part of the seam coming through. What I did like is it seems like an addition was his throat, the way he would breathe. Like he had like that bladder, yes. you know? That was really cool to see that. They focused a lot more on that. I just want to go back real quick to what you're saying about how, you know, it really does kind of feel like if you just took the last shot of the movie of him sinking to the bottom of the water, if you just took that out and didn't see that and just watched these movies back to back, it would feel like a great complete story. But also the first one on its own feels like a nice, great complete story. Whereas I hear what you're saying. This one reminds me in a way of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where it's like we have to quickly retell the first movie in the first act because there's no such thing as home video and no one knows or might remember exactly how it went down first they remake the last movie and then they move on with it instead of doing like a flashback and i have to point this out i feel like i'd be remiss if i didn't i'm coming at this from a much more informed perspective than people in the 50s were, right? Like I know just from the research I've done for this show that William Allen had this complete idea that got cut up into two movies. And so I 
can't help but wonder, had this story been complete from the get-go, you know, how things would have been different. But I know that this was meant to be sort of the third act of the original movie at one point. It's an okay sequel. It does a lot of things really well, but it feels more like a continuation of that first film than a, a sequel in its own right. And I think they really cram a lot of stuff with the human characters in this as well to, to really beef it up and I don't I just, I just don't care about them as much as the movie really wants me to we will definitely get into the humans in this movie as well and their scientific babble they say some incredible stuff in this movie remarkable stuff about what happens when you sleep amazing things about can a scientist love like just crazy dialogue in this movie <laughs> that makes me wonder if they were going more for a camp vibe the entire time yeah I guess we'll discover that along the way. All right, well, let's get into this here. So I wasn't able to find a ton of information about this movie. It was really difficult, but I did manage to find a couple interesting things about it. I should say up front that one of the biggest resources for me here was a terrific commentary track on the disc. I was surprised this one came with a commentary track. Even more surprising is that the third creature film, The Creature Walks Among Us, also has a commentary track. So really blessed in that way. The commentary for this one involves film historian Tom Weaver, Laurie Nelson, who is an actor in the movie and film archivist Bob Burns. So if you have the movie, if you have a copy, you should definitely watch with the commentary track because uh, Lori Nelson really gets into some really cool stuff about her career, if you want to learn more about her. And then, of course, Tom Weaver and Bob Burns are pointing out all sorts of fun trivia throughout the movie. So definitely check that out. As I mentioned before, William Allen was back in the producer's chair, as was his frequent collaborator, director Jack Arnold. The screenplay is credited to Martin Berkeley, based on a story by William Allen. Berkeley began as a performer and a writer on Broadway before transitioning to the movie business in 1940, where he worked for MGM until 1945, and then spent five years at 20th Century Fox from 45 to 1950. Probably his most noteworthy credit was for 1948's Greengrass of Wyoming, for which he was nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Written American Western. His other credits include So Dark the Night, Gypsy Cult, and the William Allen Jack Arnold film Tarantula. Yeah, love it. His real claim to fame, I found out, is probably being the, quote, number one friendly witness, end quote, for the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh-oh, does this mean what I think it means? Was he dropping dime on people? Oh, yeah. Including perhaps, like, I forget his name, but that portly fellow who was in the Invisible Man Fights the Nazis. <laughs> we love that actor, but he, he got booted out of the country. I don't know if Martin Berkeley specifically is responsible for that, but <laughs> here's the story. After being outed as a communist by fellow screenwriter Richard Collins, which was true, okay. Berkeley gave up more names than any other witness to the committee. Did he give up Trumbo? I don't think so. The estimates are somewhere between 155 to 161 names, including Dorothy Parker, Edward Chodorov, Michael Gordon, and Dashiell Hammett. No way. Dashiell Hammond, acclaimed pulp writer, Dashiell yep. Hammond. Bear in mind, this was all between 1951 and 1953. So this was before he wrote Revenge of the Creature. That's wild. He had to go back to work. I'm sure he was persona non grata uh, wherever he 
Wow. So I wonder if there's any of that in this movie. Next time I watch, I got to look for it or maybe see if I could feel any of that out. So following his testimony, he became a member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, an organization formed to expose communist influence in the entertainment industry. Wow. If you get a chance, you should take a look at the members of this organization. Uh, Some of them may surprise you. Others make sense. There was a whole list of names and I thought it better just look up the wiki for that group. It's the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. Ronald Reagan was a member. That's no surprise. Okay. Yeah, no surprise at all. And John Wayne, he served four one-year terms as the president. No big surprise there. (laughs) There were some other surprises. I think Barbara Stanwyck was a member of that group. Let's just be glad that we don't really have to worry about that anymore. Unlike Creature from the Black Lagoon, where principal photography was all done in Hollywood with much of the underwater footage shot in Florida, this entire production was moved out to the East Coast, specifically to Marineland, Florida, a town just south of St. Augustine, which was originally created for the sole purpose of building an oceanarium to film marine life. So this was all pretty much shot on location, which is pretty cool. Do you have any information in there about how this place in real life was open to the public and how it might have been like a proto-SeaWorld or any of that kind of information? I didn't dig too deep into it, but it does seem as though that was exactly it. It's weird, right? Like how it just started as an observatory of some kind to like document marine life and then it became do tricks and like make money and sell merchandise. And then like we even get in here, don't call him Flipper, but we do get our dolphin friend and we'll talk more about him when he shows up. It's interesting, the evolution of all that. Yeah, my understanding is they basically just came to Marineland and changed the name of this oceanarium to Ocean Harbor Oceanarium and just used it as the actual location, you know? Yeah. So instead of using a pond on the studio backlot, the St. John's River doubled as the Amazon River and the Lobster House restaurant was shot in Jacksonville, Florida. That place burned down, unfortunately, in 1962. But for anyone who may be familiar with that area, the River City Brewing Company was built right near where it used to be. All right. Quick question about filming location. The Gilman tank, are those like expensive and rare fish for real? Like, you know what I'm saying? Did they just like lock them up in the tank with like exotic fish in there and stuff? I believe so. On the commentary track, Lori Nelson talks about, you know, how she did a lot of her own diving. I was going to save this for later, but she worked on a movie called Underwater, which was a Howard Hughes film over at RKO. She learned how to use an aqualung. So when it came time to shoot Revenge of the Creature, she was able to do a lot of her own scuba work in the tank there and she talks on the commentary track she talks about how she'd be underwater with her co-star and the gill man would be in there and then there would be other people off camera to sort of control the other you know aquatic life in there so that they wouldn't interfere with shooting the logistics of having to figure that out it just boggles my mind truly truly i'll just bring this up quickly too dan you know between this episode and the last i sent you a, a photo i found of them shooting this movie and the scene in the tank and you see the enormous camera that they're using because it's yes. got to like be waterproof and all of that. And then you see like everybody's in swimsuits, right? So like, again, logistically, like that's something that never occurred to me is that just like you're going to be wet and in the water the entire time, you know, <laughs> holding electrical instruments and things. So yes. like, very tough. 
So the Gilman suit was once again built by Jack Keevan and remains largely unchanged, as you can see. I believe the head might be a little bit rounder. The eyes are definitely new. Riku Browning, who we unfortunately just lost last month, may he rest in peace, reprised his role as the Gilman for all the underwater sequences. And he also got a small cameo as one of the Oceanarium scientists. I'll point him out when we get to the breakdown of the movie. I thought, I guess, the intern at the lab, I thought he looked a lot like Clint Eastwood. I could have sworn it was Clint Eastwood. Well, not to bury the lead, Mike, but that was Clint Eastwood. This is famously his first movie. Oh my god. I was like, that guy looks just like Clint Eastwood, but there's no way. I was like, there's no way that could be him. How He's not doing this movie. Oh my god. Sorry, listeners, if I jumped the gun on that reveal there, but like, I, I just said it because I was like, this, clearly there's no way that was him. Everything I've ever read about this movie, people were like, yeah, it's Clint Eastwood's first movie. I was expecting you to already know that, so it's funny that you, you say it. No, like I never listened to the commentary of this. Every time I've seen it, it never really occurred to me or anything. And it was just watching it this time, looking for anything familiar, right? And I was like, that that young actor reminds me of Clint Eastwood. But like, that's all I was, I was like, it couldn't be. Yeah, he's um, a little ways from making his name as a famous Western actor. But this was his first film appearance. He's uncredited. Oh, okay. I think his role is Jennings. Jennings, the lab assistant. In another universe, you know, he went on to make horror films instead of westerns. Now, is Clint Eastwood the biggest movie star we've come across since we started? We've come across iconic horror actors for sure, but I think in terms of actors that transcend the genre or transcend any genre, you know, and and are just like movie stars, I think Clint Eastwood might be our biggest name so far. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the first time we've come across an actor who will become a genuine movie star. Yeah. Undiscovered Clint Eastwood. Crazy. Back to Rico Browning. So one thing I I found interesting was that despite his previous performance, Rico was not the first choice to play the Gilman in this movie. It turns out Universal wanted stuntman John Lamb to play the Gilman, and there is, in fact, some footage in the finished film with Lamb in the suit, but ultimately, the powers that be weren't satisfied with his performance, and so they recalled Riku Browning to don the suit once more. Browning once again asked for credit and was refused a second time. Wow. So that's why you don't see his name in the credits again. Now, I'm not sure why Universal wanted Lamb in the first place. My guess is that they may have wanted somebody a little bigger so they wouldn't have to pay two actors to play the character again Uh, if they could get one large man who could navigate his way through the water and on land then it would help save that money that's the only thing I've got and it's speculation entirely so it turns out there was just no substitute for Rico Browning and the way he could move through water to be quite honest with you Gilman out of the water doesn't have to be tall like I'm not telling the difference basically is what I'm saying right like I don't have a really strong perspective shift of his size in and out of the water to begin with uh, that's not what i'm paying attention to so just get rico to do both just get the guy in the water to jump out and run around on land too you know he's horrifying like it doesn't matter how tall he is to me i did learn that all of the bubbles that we see coming out of the gill man's head in this one is most likely due to the fact that rico browning was wearing a gill man head that had been made to fit john lamb so It's possible that just the oxygen was getting trapped in the mask in a way that it didn't in the previous creature film. It's a little unfortunate because it just goes to show how they didn't really have the time or money to fix that, right? Like, it's just they had to go with what they had this time, it seems, including, I think, you know, reusing a lot of footage from the first movie. 
So for the land sequences, the Gill Man was played by stuntman Tom Hennessy, replacing Ben Chapman. Hennessy was a World War II Navy veteran who made a career for himself as a Hollywood stuntman, performing stunts in John Wayne films and doubling for Rock Hudson, Randolph Scott, Rod Cameron, and others. He also worked as a teacher at many Hollywood studios, teaching celebrity students such as Natalie Wood and Paul Anka. Oh. Real quick about the Gill Man out of the water this time. As I can tell, like, this guy is way more active out of the water. This is a better performance, I feel like. Gill Man out of the water this time is more expressive. So I think this guy is doing a good job, even though I still don't think they needed him. <laughs> I think Rico could have done both. I can't imagine Ben Chapman's Gill Man flipping a car. Dude, or like launching a guy 50 yards into a tree. Yeah. I do like Tom Hennessy's performance here. I remember in the, in the first one when they had the creature on land or, or on the ship deck, they wanted him to sort of glide across instead of take steps. And I kind of love that Tom Hennessy is taking full steps here. It just makes sense. It does make it more expressive. He's more violent. I understand the idea of that. Like that's what Dracula does. You know, he sort of glides across and you don't hear him and you know he sneaks up on you and I, I, I there's there's fear to that too but I feel like this monster out of the water would be having a harder time and so he would be taking big stomping steps and trying to really grab for stuff you know and be unwieldy and things out of the water so maybe like his equilibrium screwed up because he's not right, as right. used to it as he is to swimming okay so let's get into the principal cast here there's really like three pretty much <laughs> what I did was I went through all the names that are credited at the beginning of the movie and at the end. And uh, I'll be honest with you. Some of these are stretches. Like I had to look, I had to look up, who these characters were because I couldn't remember them at all in the movie. I'll try to do my best to describe who they are, but we'll start with John Agar, who plays Professor Cleet Ferguson. Agar was an American actor of film and television. He was born in Chicago, attended Harvard School for Boys, and in 1941 joined the Navy Air Corps. He was discharged in 1943 due to an ear infection, at which point he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, which he eventually left in 1946. During his time in the service, his family moved to LA following the death of his father, and in 1943, he was asked to escort a teenage Shirley Temple to a Hollywood party. Oh. The two married in 1945. What? Yes. I didn't hear that coming. John Agar was Shirley Temple's first husband. Okay. Weird. I just didn't imagine Shirley Temple being married because I see her as like an immortal child. She's like the girl in um, Interview with a Vampire. She's just never going to get old in my mind. By 1945, I believe she was about 17 years old. So Shirley Temple's boss, none other than David O. Selznick, saw potential in John Agar and signed him to a five-year acting contract, complete with acting lessons. And Agar made his film debut with Temple in John Ford's 1948 film Ford Apache, starring John Wayne and Henry Fonda. After a few flops, Agar made a name for himself as an action star with roles in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon and Sands of Iwo Jima, again starring opposite John Wayne, whom Agar would later credit with getting him hooked on cigarettes and alcohol, which later ruined his life. That's because that's what a man does. He smokes and he drinks. So it turns out he was arrested three times for drunk driving between 1951 and 1960, and he ultimately died from severe complications from emphysema. Ouch. Thanks, John Wayne. Yeah. 
Perhaps seeing the writing on the wall, Shirley Temple divorced him in 1950, and in 1954, he signed a seven-year contract with Universal, where he became a sci-fi star, appearing in Revenge of the Creature, Tarantula, and The Mole People. During that time, he also did a handful of westerns, including The Lonesome Trail, Star in the Dust, and Flesh and the Spur. He was dropped by Universal in 1957 after complaining about all of the sci-fi movies, and unfortunately for him, he spent the rest of his career starring in low-budget sci-fi movies, with the occasional western thrown in i would kill for that career i would love to be one of those guys who's just in like terrible sci-fi movies and the occasional western just give me that immortalized on mystery science theater Fun fact, he did remarry by this point. He had met his wife, Loretta, who that would be his wife for the rest of his life. She has a cameo in this. Towards the end of the movie, as the creature is escaping through the ocean, there's a couple on a boat. Yes. they don't. I don't think they say anything, or maybe they have like a line or two. The woman on the boat is Loretta Agnes. Ah, that's, that's one of my two favorite parts of the movie is like they just cut to those people on the boat and they're just like, oh my God, look, and they scream their heads off. And there's another part later with the two students later on that's another one of my favorite parts because it's just like cut to these people you know it's like let's just open the world for a minute we've got laurie nelson as helen dobson helen was an american actress and model of the 50s and 60s she appeared in local theater productions as young as two years old and by the time she was five she had won the title of little miss america she continued the pageant circuit until she was crowned miss encino at the age of 17 was she little miss sunshine Pretty much, yeah. And right around that time, she signed a seven-year contract with Universal in 1950 and made her film debut in the 1952 Western Bend of the River. Throughout the 50s, she did plenty of Westerns, some Ma and Pa kettle work, appearing as Rosie Kettle, as well as Revenge of the Creature, the Howard Hughes film Underwater, and Roger Corman's Day the World Ended. Oh, nice. The more I hear about this underwater, the more I want to check this out, too. Yeah, I imagine it was a lot like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Revenge of the Creature in that it was like really like leading the charge in terms of like underwater motion picture photography. You know, it was sort of at the forefront of that. It's about treasure hunters. That sounds cool. Wow, it's directed by John Sturgis too. So, all right. Yeah, it might be all right. Toward the end of the 50s, she transitioned to television, appearing in the sitcom How to Marry a Millionaire with Barbara Eden and Mary Anders, plus guest spots on Wagon Train, Tales of Wells Fargo. In fact, in the commentary, she mentions, if you name a Western TV series, I did it. She was also in the Tab Hunter show. She eventually left acting behind in the 1960s after she married singer Johnny Mann and had two daughters, choosing to become a full-time mom instead. She's awesome in this movie. I love how she's like a full-fledged female scientist and like she does stuff too right like she gets in the water like she's a doer like she fights to be able to do stuff too you know when people are like i'm worried about you in the water she's like she's like i'm not worried it's exciting and the weird love triangle sort of happens in spite of all that you know like yes we'll get to it but like the moment she tries to just like snuff it out before it even starts yeah there's a lot of fun stuff with this character but like this character though has some wild theories that i can't wait to talk about when the scenes come up but strange thoughts on sleep strange thoughts on love just crazy dialogue (laughs) yes but you know what despite some of the problems with this movie she's one of the things i like most about it i might even like her more than i like Kay in the original creature from the black lagoon just in terms of female scientists i mean she's talking the talk and walking the walk i think Kay doesn't get a whole lot of that in the original creature whereas helen is like 
full-fledged scientist, you know. Dr. Dobson, yep. She has been quoted as saying that this was one of the most fun movies she ever made, even though at the time she had been doing more high-profile work and didn't really want to be doing a science fiction movie, right? Like a lot of times, uh, movie stars of this era w- wouldn't be caught dead doing science fiction or television. It turns out when she left, she left Universal, well, she didn't leave Universal. She was on loan to RKO to make Underwater. And during that time, that's when Decca Records acquired Universal and there was a whole regime change. And so when she came back to Universal, it was like all new people. They didn't really know who she was. And that's kind of why she got this movie. Later in life, she really embraced her performance here and she would do a lot of the fan cons, you know, and she loved talking to the, the horror fans. So uh, it was really just like at the time she had higher expectations for her career. By 1960, it seemed like she was checked out anyway. It worked out for the best for her anyway. We've got John Bromfield as Joe Hayes. John was another World War II Navy vet. He was also a football player and a boxing champion before he gained his first acting experience in the 1940s. He first appeared in the 1948 adventure film Harpoon, followed by Sorry Wrong Number, starring Burt Lancaster and Barbara Stanwyck that same year. By 1960, his acting career was pretty much over, having started a number of B-horror and crime thrillers and TV series, ending with the starring role on The Sheriff of Cochise and its spinoff U.S. Marshal. He then went on to produce sports shows and work as a commercial fisherman. Well, this guy is like Joe Handsome. It's hard to imagine him being anything than a movie star in life. He's, he seems too pretty to have been a boxer. Like, he got hit in the face a lot? Like, I don't buy it. Like, he's got that kind of look, that kind of swagger. I liked him in this role because you'd think he's going to be the love interest lead because he kind of starts out the movie as like this heroic kind of guy, but he turns into like a real jerk real quick, you know, and kind of gets his comeuppance by the creature. So like that, that's a lot of fun to see the way he was playing this character. I love that John Agar calls him Mr. America. So perfect. Nestor Paeva as Captain Lucas reprising his role there. Not much to say here. We talk about him a lot in in our Creature from the Black Lagoon episode. The next four actors, they're listed in the main credits, but I had to do some detective work to figure out exactly who they were. I would say there's one guy we haven't talked about yet that we probably should mention. I'm interested to hear who they are and who they play. All right, so Grandin Rhodes plays Jackson Foster. He's really only in one scene, maybe two, depending on how you look at it. Like when Joe returns from the Black Lagoon, and they have the creature on the winch. Oh, right. And they're kind of getting him in, into the tank. The water coffin? That thing is so cool. Jackson Foster is one of the guys that greets him on the dock. Oh. He's the guy in like the suit. Oh, okay. With the sunglasses. My only guess is that he's like the owner of Ocean Harbor or is like the financier of the expedition. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. But that's who he is. He was born in Jersey City. He began his acting career in various repertory theaters from all over. He made his film debut in 1944's Follow the Boys. And a glance at his film career shows a ton of uncredited and supporting roles in westerns, crime thrillers, and B-horror movies, including Shadow of a Doubt, White Heat, House of Wax, Them, and Jailhouse Rock. I know. I was like, uh, are we going to get an Elvis reference? Are we going to get a uh, Batman reference? He's in a lot of movies that I like. Like, he's in Born Yesterday. I love that. He's in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Love that movie. I didn't even know how to begin to whittle down his filmography, to be honest. I just picked like a couple that I had heard of and I'm like, okay, we'll throw these in there. He might be most recognizable to our listeners as the doctor in Bonanza and the judge in Perry Mason. Interesting. There's Dave Willock as Lou Gibson. 
He's the other guy in those sequences. He's the guy in the tie. My assumption is he's like the manager of Ocean Harbor because he's so concerned about all of the tourism that's coming his way because of the of this thing. I thought he was going to be a bigger presence. I thought he was going to be sort of like the mayor in Jaws, where he was all concerned about like money. Yeah, it's not clear what his role is. Uh, so I have no idea, but that's who Dave Willick plays. That's Lou Gibson. With 181 film and TV credits over the course of his career, character actor Dave Willick began his career as a vaudeville performer who teamed up with the likes of Jack Carson and Cliff Arquette through the 40s and 50s. Yes, that's Cliff Arquette, the grandfather of Dave Arquette. Arquette, you know, yeah. the whole Arquette clan. Through the 60s, he made appearances on television in episodes of Margie, Dragnet, and even played seven different characters on Green Acres. He also appeared as Baby Jane Hudson's father in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And he had an uncredited role as a bartender in the Elvis movie, Frankie and Johnny. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Two Elvis connections here. Two in a row. And you'll appreciate this. He was the, also the voice of the narrator in the animated series Wacky Races. Oh, love that. Yeah, that's that's a fun show. Love all those crazy cars. Robert Williams plays George Johnson, who is the other scientist on the Rita. This guy deserves credit. I remember him from the movie. He's in the whole sort of like first 10, 15 minutes. Like he's in this a lot. Yes. He was a character actor with over 150 films to his name. He made his film debut in the 1941 Best Picture winner, How Green Was My Valley, starring Walter Pidgeon and Maureen O'Hara. He did films of every conceivable genre, including On the Town, Father's Little Dividend, which was the sequel to Father of the Bride, Singing in the Rain, Rebel Without a Cause, The Killing, The Spirit of St. Louis, Porkchop Hill, The Bat, North by Northwest, and Hang 'em High, among many, many others. Tons of stuff and that's just the films he did he also made a lot of tv appearances on rawhide the wild wild west lassie mission impossible bonanza the andy griffith show gunsmoke the virginian and the partridge family i'm sure there's an elvis movie in there somewhere no episodes of batman this guy was all over the boob tube but never uh, stopped in gotham city <laughs> finally charles kane as the police captain i couldn't find a lot of information about him but i know he had a lot of small and uncredited roles in the 40s and 50s he also did a lot of tv and funny enough he he was also in The Killing with Robert Williams. The Stanley Kubrick killing. Yes, they were both credited as plainclothesmen at airport. All right, and that's it for the cast. Uh, you revealed Clint Eastwood uh, prematurely, but that's okay. Sorry about that, everybody, but I was like, it couldn't possibly be him, <laughs> but lo and behold. Before we get into the movie itself, I do have some alternate titles to get through. Please, because I couldn't even remember Revenge of the Creature. I, I kept calling it the, the Creature Returns, Return of the Creature. Yeah, so I, and it never stuck. Revenge of the Creature has not stuck with me. Yeah, almost all of them are horrible. <laughs> Revenge of the Creature is definitely the best of the bunch. So the original title, like I'm sure this was a working title because there's no way it would go out into theaters with this but the first title was sequel to the creature from the black lagoon again must have been a working title that would be amazing if the next fast and furious is just called sequel to fast and furious 10 <laughs> then we had return of the creature beware of the creature captivity of the gill man creature mm. in captivity mm. the creature in the tank mm. gill man versus science whoa okay i'd read that book but i'd not watch that movie 
Fair enough, fair enough. The half-human creature. Dude, these are terrible. These are horrible. Yeah, I don't know how seriously any of these were considered. Just do, like, the creature unleashed, or, like, it's got to be from the Black Lagoon, too, in there, you know? Like, this could be any creature they're talking about, unless you see the poster. And right, you're like, oh, right. Okay, that, that, that creature. We got a couple more. Undersea Monsters, Terror of the Deep, Terrifying Creature, Strange Terror, and maybe my favorite of the bad ones, New Adventures of the Creature. That is wild. Fire everybody in the marketing department yesterday. So that's all I got for Revenge of the Creature. The creature takes a walk. The creature gets you. Okay, let's talk about the movie here. All right. So it opens up once again in the Amazon. This time we skip over the uh, Dawn of Time sequence. We don't have to go through all that. Fast forward to present day. (laughs) So one of the things that's in the opening credits that I thought was interesting, usually you see this at the end of the movie, but they put it right up front before the credits are even over. It says, we gratefully acknowledge the generous cooperation extended to us by the Marine Studios of Marineland, Florida, where scenes for this production were photographed. I thought that was interesting. Put that way up at the top to let people know. Once the movie starts properly, we get a title card that says, a tributary of the upper Amazon. Just a fancy way of saying somewhere in the Amazon. Yeah, right. And so this was all that, all the stuff shot in Florida, which I, I think it doubles pretty well for the Amazon. I mean, as much as the back lot of Universal in, in LA doubled for it previously. Yeah, I buy it. It doesn't take much, especially, you know, black and white on, on the water, lots of foliage. Like, yeah, it sells it really well. You cut to all the different animals. You get the alligators and everything. It's really cool. So we're aboard the Rita 2 with uh, Captain Lucas. And the reason for that is because, like I said, this was shot in Florida and the Rita 1 was still back in Hollywood. Oh, I was thinking that like the Rita 1 just got like too jacked up. So now he's got the Rita 2. Maybe he's superstitious. He's not going to bring the same boat back to the same location twice. The creature will recognize that boat. (laughs) I had the same thought until I found out like the real reason why it's a different boat. It's a sequel. It's part two. It's the second boat. We get some reused footage here of Captain Lucas freaking out some of the local wildlife with this foghorn. We also meet Joe and George on board the Rita. What I liked about this is that we have George and Lucas. So we have George Lucas. Oh, man. So we know they're down here looking for the Gill Man. I think they establish in the next scene that the events of the previous film happened like a year ago. And so now the word is out that this Gill Man exists. And so now these new scientists are, are, are coming in to try and capture it. I love the little conversation they have above deck. And Joe kind of gives the whole like, I'm not afraid. Like I get this thing. And he, he swings like his leg up and puts it up on the, the side of the boat to do sort of like a hero pose. And it's just like, I'm sorry. Sorry, but that is just like the worst acting. <laughs> like it just made me laugh so hard. He doesn't do anything remotely like that for the rest of the movie either. So I'm like, who is he doing that for? Is that for the audience to really sort of sell quickly that this guy is kind of pompous or that he's a blowhard, that kind of thing? He is tough, right? So yes. at least he like he's not a coward. He's gonna back it up. But this is all fun where Lucas is like scaring the hell out of him or trying to, being like, You guys are nuts to hire me to come back here. Real quick about Joe before we move on. I had trouble recognizing Joe from this scene and then in his future scenes because here mm. he's he's like, he looks like 
these scientists we've come to recognize in these movies. His hair is combed perfectly. And then later we see him at the Oceanarium and he's like got the messy hair, got no shirt on. You know, he just looks like a completely different person. So I almost like didn't recognize him from the beginning of the movie later on. You know, like I didn't realize the same thing. I can see that. I got that. Yeah. So now we have this scene where kind of recaps the first movie for anybody who may have forgotten. I discovered that this sequence was shot way after production had wrapped. Okay, you're talking about them below deck when they're eating. Yep. It, it's very much, it reminds me of that scene in Jaws, you know, where they're like drinking and they start singing and all that. Yeah, this is a fun scene. Yeah, and it's like everything we're not going to be able to shoot from the last movie. I'm going to tell you real quickly what else you missed. Right, but, but in the editing, uh, I guess they started to realize that without this scene, the action just moved too quickly. I think they were out of the Amazon in like... 10 pages. Okay. So they had to add some more stuff in here just to slow it down a bit. I think it works, you know? I mean, they say some crazy stuff, but a lot of it's fun, you know? And they talk about, like, how did this thing survive? And, like, one theory is the isolation theory, you know, where it, like, locked itself off from the rest of the world so it was able to duplicate itself without evolution. So they're calling it, like, a missing link. Right. In that regard. And Lucas is basically like, you know what I think? He's stronger than evolution. He's a demon. Yes. demonic. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> we're getting some really fun, crazy sci-fi dialogue here. Yeah, this is really, in a broad sense, like science versus superstition. Captain Lucas is not an educated man, and he he kind of lives his life based on his own intuition and the stories he grew up hearing. And so, yeah, the scientists believe that there, there's an explanation for it. It makes logical sense. You know, we're going to capture it and solve that mystery. And Lucas is just like, no, that's a demon. <laughs> and he's like, I know that because uh, I saw it kill five people last yes. time. It can't be stopped. And I was thinking to myself, like, we saw it get shot and fall to the bottom of the lagoon and everything, but they didn't, right? So, you know, he's even kind of hinting, like, I never saw a body. Like, it could still be here. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing back in this place. Yeah. It makes me wonder why he agreed to come back knowing the creature might still be out there, you know? But I like the continuity. I like having Captain Lucas in both totally. of these movies. So the following shot, Okay, I want to address this because it's so upsetting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I really hope nothing bad happened to this bird, but it is a really effective shot. I will say that much. I'm just so concerned for the animal's welfare because I don't think there was any way they could fake this. A man in a Gilman suit drags a crane into the water. Yeah, the shot kind of just starts on the crane sitting on a log and then out of nowhere, it's maybe the biggest jump scare out of both movies. The arm just grabs it out of the water and drags it underneath. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Animals were harmed during the making of this movie, weren't they? That's a different time. I really hope it was okay. No, I don't think it was, Dan. I don't think it was, especially if they had to do another take. So finally, the Rita 2 makes its way into the Black Lagoon. I think we have some recycled footage here, possibly. Yeah. The scientists block off the entryway into the lagoon. The creature spies them, like, immediately. The plan is to have Joe go down in, like, one of those old-school scuba diver suits with a big metal helmet. Yeah, yeah, like the Men of Honor stuff. Yep. So I'm not entirely sure what his goal here is. I think maybe just to do some recon. They had to make sure that thing was in place, right? Because they want to make sure it didn't escape. So I thought that the idea was he's going to go down and make sure that they're 
contraption is sealed off the entire lagoon. And then while he's down there, he's like, yeah, I'm going to also like wrestle out the monster and, you know, try and capture him. And because they don't realize like, you know, Lucas is trying to tell them this thing will tear you in half. And they're like, yeah, right. Whatever, man. Like it's all a bunch of hot air. And then they go down there and he gets thrashed by the kill man. Like he gets his ass handed to him. Yeah, he immediately gets his shit rocked. It's a good thing he's wearing that suit, right? In the original creature, they were just sort of in shorts with aqualungs and no real protection. But here, Joe has some protection in this diving suit. And you're right. I think that in the scuffle, he is trying to bring the Gilman back up with him. The Gilman gets away. They do manage to bring Joe back aboard. He's been severely injured yeah his entire suit's been destroyed right like he's ripped it to shreds he's destroyed like all of the uh, apparatus he went for the air hose even like he tore the air hose out right out of the gate it's like very smart it knows exactly what's going on yeah very formidable also wondering do you think it regenerated after it got shot to death or whatever like all those holes and stuff like i was just thinking oh it's probably got like a healing factor kind of thing possibly i mean it's been a year since the last one i would think that within a year he should be able to recover especially if we're using the logic you presented last time about how you know like aquaman right he doesn't need armor because his skin is built to withstand the pressures of the deep ocean right i think that the Gilman probably wasn't as injured as we were led to believe right yeah. i mean it's a pretty convincing final shot where he's his lifeless body kind of sinks to the bottom and there are holes but i think if we kind of ignore that a little bit and just use that logic yeah he probably recovered pretty quickly that, i mean that's what i'm going to tell myself anyway i like that more than the fact that like it's a whole new guy or right. gal that there's another one i mean it was sort of the idea of the first is like they find the old one right and then there happens to be a fresh one living but like i don't know it would kind of ruin it for me if this wasn't the same guy i like to think that uh, he's like taking his time to heal up yes agreed with joe back safely on deck the scientists resort to plan b kind of similar to what we saw in the previous film where they were using this chemical to knock out the Gilman and subsequently like all the other wildlife in the in the lagoon yeah they were using like a neurotoxin <laughs> yeah something like that this time they're using straight up dynamite they <laughs> to blow up the lagoon they've rigged up these like dynamite buoys all throughout the lagoon the idea is that the shock wave will render anything under the water like unconscious and uh, it works yeah this was pretty funny because i think the first time i saw this in a movie was in like crocodile dundee 2 like it opens with him fishing in the hudson river or something like he's floating out between new york and the statue of liberty and he takes a stick of dynamite and just like throws it in the water and a bunch of fish float up to the surface i was like getting the exact (laughs) same vibe (laughs) and they use a lot they use a lot you know lucas is like are you gonna blow up the boat yeah i was surprised at how big that explosion was like i said it does work and not long after the fish all come to the surface we see the gill man face down floating on the surface of the lagoon there's nothing left but to bring him back to the united states i love it we get the tv report we get the guy and he actually has a really cool line he's like this is the greatest scientific discovery to spur interest since the atomic bomb i was like hey that's like what we were talking about about the atomic age it's it's self-aware this movie like in a way i never expected i was a little bit surprised he mentioned atomic bomb 
like a decade after World War II ended. Yeah. Right? I feel like it, with it being the Cold War at this point, everyone kind of afraid of nuclear warfare. Like, why would you have a guy say atomic bomb in this movie? Well, they do a lot of weird things in this. They say a lot of crazy stuff. Now back at the United States, we are introduced to Cleet Ferguson. He's a professor and he works at a lab for like animal behavior. That's sort of his focus. We cut to this lab and there's a chimp painting and it's like wearing overalls and it's painting and i'm like what is going on first of all shout out monkey club a a very long defunct show on the network but a great show monkey club all about monkey movies i was like how is this gonna play into the film is this ape gonna fight the gill man at some point i had some major nope thoughts i'm like this monkey is gonna tear somebody's face off oh my gosh dan Um, that is exactly where it should have gone I think Neil is just one of several test subjects. It was probably very popular to have like a chimp co-star at this time. We've got some other animals in the background. And then this is where we meet young Clint Eastwood as one of the scientists here. And he gets a little bit of a comic moment, right? He's doing an experiment here with predators and prey and and whether or not they will kind of leave each other alone as long as they're well fed. He's reporting to Professor Ferguson that the cage he's referring to has three mice in it and a cat. He suspects that the cat ate one of the mice because there were four mice in there. And the gag is that like he checked everywhere and then he sticks his hands in his lab coat pockets and one of the mice is in there. It's a fun little bit of business he gets to do there, a little comedy. It's a cute gag, but like it's weird because it's Clint Eastwood. Oh, that is the weirdest, especially like now that I know it's him for sure. Because originally, I at least I could be like, oh, well, it's just like a mistaken identity. Like, there's no way that could be him. And so the joke could kind of stand on its own. But now that I know it's for sure Clint Eastwood doing this, like it's too distracting to ever watch again. And like not just focus on the, that Clint Eastwood has a rat in his pocket the whole time. And he's like doing experiments on a kitten. I heard that in one version of this sequence, he was going to like be squeamish about the rat he would realize it was in his pocket and get kind of weirded out by it i'm glad that they changed that i can't imagine a guy looking like clint eastwood being weird about a rat but yeah it's a fun little cameo so now professor ferguson or cleat we'll just call him cleat here's the news that the gill man from the amazon has been captured and brought to the ocean harbor oceanarium being uh, an animal behavior scientist he can't resist the opportunity to take a leave of absence and go down and study this thing. I, I still can't believe that it's called an oceanarium for some reason. I mean, it just seems so silly. <laughs> like, they actually use that term. I don't know why. It just As opposed to aquarium? Yeah, as opposed to aquarium or just scientific institute of, you know, marine life or something. Like, it just seems so pseudo-sciencey or futuristic sounding like it's an ocean arium or whatever you know planetarium like that kind of thing it's possible that a word like ocean arium would help the facility balance being both a scientific facility for study and also a tourist attraction it's like edutainment right if it was called like a scientific institute of some kind well you don't expect to see tourists there but ocean arium yeah you could see kids with popcorn and a dolphin that does tricks So now Gilman is hoisted up on this winch and lowered into this, you described it kind of like a, like a water coffin. Yeah. It's like a water coffin. 
It's really interesting concept there that they're going to put him in a box filled with water and like nail it shut. <laughs> and we learned that the Gilman has been in a coma ever since the dynamite exploded in the lagoon. And the news is out about him that he's coming to Florida and there's like a media circus, tourist frenzy, and they're expecting big lines and all kinds of excitement. What's problematic is that the Gilman is still comatose. You got all these people coming and you can't have a Gilman that's comatose. He's got to be able to perform. That's the number one beat with a story like this. You know, Jurassic Park, it can't be working when you go there, right? Like something's wrong. Like, hey, why isn't the ride? Like, where are all the dinosaurs, right? So like at first it's broken and then it works too well to the point where like it comes and it kills you. But I have a question about this scene. We definitely don't have anyone in the costume during this sequence, right? Like it's, they're just sort of swimming around an empty suit. That's what it looks like. It does look like that. I don't know for sure. I would suspect you're probably right until it starts moving. There's really no reason to have an actor in that suit, but I don't know. Yeah, I can't confirm one way or the other. I wouldn't put it past the movie to have a guy in the suit during just this part because like, in a little while when they move him around, there's going to be a guy in the suit, but he's also going to be like in a bag, which is also in a net, you know? So it's like, I don't know what they're thinking exactly when it comes to like what we need uh, as opposed to like what we have to do. So what Joe is doing, and we're going to kind of get an explanation here, because in the same scene, we meet Helen Dobson. She explains he is moving the creature around in the water, allowing the water to pass through its mouth and across its gills, which is meant to release carbon dioxide. And that should eventually bring the gill man out of his coma. It's a practice that is like, that's legitimate. That happens in real life. I think it's still in, in practice today. It was a legitimate practice, at least at the time. I love that that detail there. We're learning actual science in this scene. And so Helen introduces herself as an ichthyology student to this incredibly condescending reporter. He starts talking to her and he's like talking to the microphone and calls her like one of the prettiest people he's ever had the pleasure of interviewing. And then when she says she's studying ichthyology, he's like, oh, well, there's a $3 word. Why don't you, why don't you tell us what that means? She gets the same treatment later when she's like kidnapped by the creature on the news. They're like, and the very pretty female scientist, Miss <laughs> Dobson is missing. And it's like, what? It's a little bit thick here. At least the movie is kind of saying like, no, you dumb man. Like, I'm I'm a woman <laughs> that can also be a scientist. Yeah, that's what I think is great. Like, if you're going to have these dopey dudes asking stupid questions, at least have your female character here have the good sense to, like, shut it down with some actual know-how instead of just going along with in it. In this scene, I think I mentioned earlier, exact same scene in Jaws where they're trying to wake uh, Jaws up in Jaws 3. Jaws yes. is in a coma. They're doing the same exact thing in front of a bunch of people like super dangerous i mean they've handled this thing you know they fought it they should tell everybody to get away in case it wakes up you would think but joe spends a couple hours in that tank just walking the gill man around before he finally starts moving and then this is when hell starts to break loose it's in the script but it doesn't really translate well in the film he so he regains consciousness and kind of like stands up out of the water and suddenly all the photographers just start snapping photos and it's the flash bulbs that set him off 
They could have focused on that more. That would have been really cool. You could have shot that it's... in a very kinetic, frantic sequence of editing, right? Of like bulbs going off and being overpowered by the flashes and stuff. That's cool. Because I catch a couple of it going off and it, all I'm thinking is, wow, this whole thing's being documented. So in the script, it's it's more clear that it's the flash bulbs that uh, have him sort of start to freak. It sort of plays that he wakes up, he's not in the lagoon and he's sort of like really disoriented. Like, where the hell am I? Like, every, suddenly everything is concrete, and it's like, what is this place? Yeah, he was never going to wake up in a particularly good mood. He starts to run amok. Joe rushes to the rescue. He goes over the edge into the tank, and he wrestles with the gill man for the second time. Yeah, this thing jumps. It has some ups, you know? Like, it almost yep. just, like, yep. floats up there. And it's fast. Like, you really get... I really got a sense of how quick it could be. Feels like if it touches you, you're a goner, you know? So, like, don't even let it touch you, because when it grabs you, like, you're going under or something. It really really knocks the hell out of one of the dudes. I don't know if it kills him, but like one guy ends up getting like seriously injured. I know one photographer gets it real good. That's the other thing. It's like people keep falling in and jumping in after people. It's like a real good sense of mayhem. Yes, but they do manage to subdue the Gill Man. A couple guys throw a big net over him, and then they, they, there's some ropes, and they're managed to like get him under control. At that point, a couple divers here manages to bring him into the enclosure, into the tank where he's going to be kept, and they chain him to the floor, which is real sad. Fun fact here, that's Rico Browning in the suit. Uh, then the other two guys are John Lamb, who was replaced but with... Riku Browning ultimately as the Gill Man. And the other diver is Tom Hennessy, who was the Gill Man on land. So in this scene, you have three Gill Man actors all together, which I think is kind of neat. Yeah, that's really fun. That, that's really cool. Like, it reminds me how in the original Ninja Turtles movie, like, two or three of the guys playing the turtles appear as minor characters as themselves like one is the pizza delivery guy one is like the cabbie passenger yeah so like that's really fun i love when they do that now the gill man is fully in captivity he's got shackle around his ankle he's chained to the floor of this tank this observatory whatever he's in it's like it's like this 360 degree thing with windows like all around it right so you're just constantly looking in at him and he seems to be dead center of this thing chained up and he has like just enough chain to get his head above water so you know he can't really get too far and for the rest of of his time spent in this tank, which is probably going to be about a half hour of the movie, he is going to be yanking at that chain, trying to get the hell out of there, just like constantly working that chain, get out of there as soon as possible. And and my other very favorite thing about this set is that they gave him like an anchor for a chair. He's got like an anchor chair. He sits on this anchor and it's like his lazy boy. This is where the movie kind of slows down for me. I think for the next like 30 to 40 minutes, it's just Mm -hmm. a lot of underwater study sequences intercut with dates. Our love triangle starts to form here. Yeah. I have a major, major, major question about this movie is like, how is the Gilman not 
in Area 51. Like, how is this not Shape of Water, right? Like, Shape of Water is the true sequel to <laughs> Creature from the yeah. Black Lagoon, right? Like, because that's how it would go down. Like, he would go to a lab, some like, no one would know about him. Instead, it's, like, quite the opposite. It's like, yeah, we're going to do some tests on it, but, like, you want a picture with the Gill Man? Like, we're even going to get a standee from the lobby of the movie theater and put it at SeaWorld for you to, like, advertise him and everything. It's just a wild concept to me. Yeah, I, I love that they use that Ben Chapman Gilman cutout from the first movie. But yeah, you're right. I think that in the 50s, there was a, probably a lot more trust in science. Isn't this around the time of like alien sightings for the first time and like Roswell? But, you know, he's not an alien. You know, he's an aquatic terrestrial creature. Like he's of Earth. He's not an alien. So I don't see a reason why the government would get involved in shape of water that's a period piece right I'm, I'm remembering now that that's set in like the 60s and the government's involved maybe you're right but i just see this as more sciencey i can't picture the government taking over the situation roswell was 47 the incident the way i was looking at it more so is after seeing like indiana jones and all that and you know that they like it's just like x files you know it's it's any right, kind right. of like weird creature that we can't explain the men in black will go after it so i'm not saying they needed to go there i actually quite enjoy this take on it because it's almost like the wrong people caught it it's very much king kong too if you look at the new version like the government does go to skull island instead of a filmmaker and they are trying to do like science and experiments and things you know the new one the one that has john goodman in it it just occurred to me that's all it's just something i thought about that that struck me funny the point i was trying to make before is that i think in the 50s people were more trusting of science in situations like this mm-hmm. whereas now we we are much more cynical as a, a society the government is a more nefarious presence and of course would want their hands on anything like this those stories come later in terms of like how movies are being told and how stories are being told that's how it, it appears to me but i could be totally wrong about that i think that's very interesting i mean we're digressing a bit here and we'll get back but like just the whole concept of People did probably trust the government more around this time just because we got out of World War II. We're sort of in that zone before Vietnam or like just getting into Vietnam. So like all of that is is going to hit. And then when that hits society and the cultural zeitgeist, then it starts flowing into films, you know, and it gets translated into sci-fi and horror and those ways and stuff. So like it's it's going to come, right? Like it's a wave that's about to come. Yeah, so that, that that's my theory anyway as to why like the government it. doesn't intervene here. So now the Gill Man is living his life in the tank. We learn from the announcer that the scientists have been studying him. They're not really sure what his diet is. He doesn't touch any of the fish or any of the other sea creatures in the tank with him, but they've figured out they can feed him with like dead fish. Why aren't they just trying meat? Feed him a cow or like a deer or, or something like he doesn't eat fish he is a fish well some fish eat other fish you know if i had to guess i'd say maybe he was a vegetarian that was like oh, his sure. thing but like they don't even think to feed him kelp or seaweed or any of that kind of stuff no but he does eat little dead fish out of the basket that they drop in there because i think he's starving Oh, yeah. I mean, that that could be, too. The movie doesn't get into it to that degree, but that could be certainly be a possibility. But so while that's going down, like I said, the love triangle really starts in earnest here. Before that, we just get a little bit where they introduce the concept of dolphins because um, they're like, hey, look how well the dolphins follow orders and we can feed them properly and stuff. And it's going to sort of set up how 
how they're going to try and tame the gill man and train him like a dolphin or something like they get into the science of intelligence i guess is the way yes. they put it right and so they want to yep, see yep. like how smart is the gill man is he smarter than a dolphin so we the audience are seeing just how smart these dolphins are and, and we get a cute little exhibition here we don't get flippy not flipper copyright trademark patent pending flippy predates flipper does he really wow i never would yeah. have imagined i feel like we might have looked up flipper before on this show for some reason this made me think like with the chimp and later with the dog like are we going to get some kind of animal justice league team up against the gill man where there's like a chimp a dog and a dolphin and they're gonna fight the gill man like on land sea and air flipper was released in 1963 wow way later rico browning was uh, involved with that he got a story credit and i'm sure oh. he was responsible for a lot of the second unit underwater stuff as well all right then he definitely was like we did this thing called flip let's call it flipper yeah okay so it looks like rico browning he's the co-creator of flipper oh, okay he originally conceived the story after seeing his children intently watching the tv series lassie and so he just wanted to make lassie but replace the dog with the dolphin i mean lassie and flippy sound pretty close in name that's some crazy connection that rico browning is uh co-creator of flipper and here we basically have like the first version of that yeah, like a precursor to Flipper. Yeah. Proto Flipper. Okay, so now our love triangle is going to start in earnest here. Cleet and Helen meet officially for the first time. Uh, I think they have been aware of each other before now, but this is the first time that they're meeting. It starts off well enough about how like they each like specialize in something different, right? And that there's no reason they can't work together without stepping on each other's toes. I think there's a joke about how hyper-specific these scientists can get with their areas of study. But then he immediately asks her out on a date. He kind of flubs it, right? Like she calls him out a little bit where... He's not so smooth. It was kind of one of those moments where you see in modern movies where someone tries to ask him out and they're super awkward and it's kind of like, do you like food? And then they walk a little bit and she's like, would you like to try again? And he's like, can I have the pleasure of taking you out to dinner this evening, miss? And it's like way more cordial. Yes. And they discover they're both staying at the same motel, the Star Motel. As they're walking down the sidewalk, they're spotted by Joe. Cleet knows right away he's got to get her out of there or he's going to lose his chance. Calls him in front of her, goes, Joe's a number one wolf. He's going to ruin my chances with you. Yeah, he says one of the grossest lines of dialogue right here. He says, what, and let Mr. America cut into my cake? It's just one of the insane things that people say throughout this entire movie. I don't know if that creature is giving off some kind of weird pheromone to drive everybody nuts, but... Yeah, it's some weird macho 50s bullshit here. It is fun because the dick measuring starts right away. I, I heard that in the original script, their relationship was supposed to be much more adversarial than it is here. But here it's played more as just guys being guys and ball busting. It's pretty much confined to this and the next scene for the most part. Joe is sort of portrayed as the bronze and Cleet is the brains, you know, and it's just that moment for this scene, I feel, where it's like, hey, why would you want to go out with this boring dork when you can come out with exciting me? Like, I caught the Gill Man. Which leads me to wonder, Joe caught the Gill Man. Like, he should be on television. He should be on, like, some kind of circuit, celebrity circuit, talking about all this. 
doing he doesn't have time to be chasing girls and all that kind you know like i would feel like aside from his duties with the gill man he's in high demand like he's almost got celebrity status or should i would think so too i don't get the sense that joe is a is a scientist i think he's sort of like the animal wrangler right he's an yeah. expert in that way but he's not studying he's there he's sort of like the zookeeper at this like oceanarium right i guess i'm just overwhelmed at how underwhelmed most people are about what's actually going on here you know they're calling this thing the missing link and they're saying it's like the find of the century and everything and yet it's reduced to a roller coaster ride or something like that it's funny how we're focusing on the personal lives of these people i was saying before earlier at the top of the show that like i don't care so much about these people that i need this much of the movie to focus on it but so now we're at the flippy scene and they're going to be talking about animal intelligence and communication and training and all that kind of stuff and we meet another man in helen's life yeah um, the best man her puppy chris chris the dog he's a big dog i mean he might be young but he's a big boy but she's got this whole story about how she met him recently and he just won her over and she's in love with him and it's, i think she calls him her boyfriend at one point yeah yeah so it's just more competition for cleat unfortunately this dog is also not going to save the day they keep introducing animals and that's my first thought is like all right this thing is going to help defeat the gill man at the end of the movie which was the best dog was that invisible man's revenge because he changed the dog visible again and then yes. it went he went after him yeah that's yeah right. yeah that would that was the best dog we really got into the weeds about lassie and benji and rin tin tin and all that just gotta say after joe tried to sort of butt in with helen and cleat helen kind of is like well we could all go out to dinner together and joe's like nah, oh yeah let him have his chance they go to watch flippy and joe's sitting like right behind them yes <laughs> he's like followed them there to like what like annoy them because he's like i don't get it what is all this about and that's when they start talking about animal intelligence and all that kind of shit it's such a goofy love triangle it just feels like he's like didn't even acknowledge the last scene just happened it's like bro you just like created this really awkward moment and now you're acting like it never happened the relationship between Cleet and Joe was supposed to be more adversarial. Maybe that scene was added or he was added to that scene to sort of lighten that tension a little bit and make it seem less like that and more jocular. That's my own supposition. I don't know. But the next day at work, Cleet and Helen are about to head into the tank themselves, get some firsthand experience with the Gill Man and try to make communication with him or at least train him a little bit. They establish through an underwater speaker that he does respond to the human voice right they lower it down into the water and they're speaking into it and it's echoing through the water and, and the gill man is reacting to it yeah so now they know he'll respond to the human voice and the next step is to take an electric bull prod into the tank and what they're going to do is offer him food helen is going to say the word stop and then cleat is going to shock the gill man so that he associates the word stop with something dangerous it is horrific <laughs> they are gonna try and condition him yes it is so inhumane that yes. i am instantly on the side of the guild man <laughs> you know for the rest yeah. of the movie i'm like there's nothing wrong with this creature in two movies in a row humanity has come and like messed with him and like ruined his life and he wasn't doing anything you know he was just leaving the world alone and getting on with him by himself and like this is disturbing but i also have to wonder like i'm no scientist like would a, an electric cattle prod work underwater like that wouldn't they shock everybody to death yes yes it would <laughs> 
that's one of the things that's pointed out in the commentary, which I thought was really funny because I was thinking it too. It's one of these ideas that if you were to ever try to execute this for real, the electricity would penetrate every living thing in that tank. It would turn into a deep fryer, like immediately. The science isn't really sound here, but I'm with you. I think if I wasn't already on the Gilman's side up to this point, this is the turning point. This is just mean. Well, you know what's even worse that I was thinking is like, this is taken from stuff that, that was going on in real life. So this is probably how they train that chimp, you know? I mean, like for the movie, I mean, like to act, right? Like in real life sure. kind of stuff. Like you mentioned Nope. And like that is yeah. a perfect example, you know, of why why you don't do this kind of thing. It's just an accident waiting to happen. I'm sure at some point this may have been a, the way to establish intelligence in animals. Maybe by the 50s, they didn't really need to do that with chimps. I think they kind of knew that chimps were like five-year-old children in terms of their uh, comprehension. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure this is sort of how they would gauge intellect with brand new animals, which is, again, it's horrifying. Now, they do the experiment. They do a session and it seems to work. It does. He understands. He knows what stop means. And he knows that if he can show them he knows what they mean he'll get a reward or like they just they won't shock the shit out of him um but like he immediately goes back to trying to break his chains and they're like well we need to do more tests and they want to like put um all kinds of electrodes on him and measure his heart rate and and things like that they're gonna put like drugs in one of the fish and joe refers to it as a mickey fin yes a mickey Yes. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, he kind of throws that around pretty casually, doesn't he? As if, like, I've done this a million times. Oh, you want to do it to a fish? I mean, I usually do it to my dates, but, like, sure, I'm sure to work on a fish, I was going to say, if, if I was Helen, I would run far away. Well, she deflected him early, luckily. Yes, yes. So, right, that's the next step. They're going to go back down into the tank. Cleet's going to bring this cage with a drugged fish that will hopefully render the, the Gilman unconscious again so that they can hook him up to, like, these monitors, right, that will monitor his brainwaves and all that kind of shit. It's all the stuff your Apple Watch does. But before, yeah. like, we used to do this in gym class where we would strap on, like, heart monitors and pulse readers and things, and then we'd go run for, like, a half hour, and we'd, oh, look at this. It's, like, before apps were a thing. And so, like, they do that. That's what their plan, you know? They need to take all these readings. If you watch this scene carefully, in the scene where the basket is lowered down and the gill man grabs the fish and kind of swims off, you'll notice on the end inside right leg of the creature's suit there's a hole oh no i didn't see it yeah it's a little gaff there something for you to, to look for next time you watch it but it's one of the only flaws that i can find in the in the suit like we don't see a zipper anywhere but for some reason we see this hole that sort of was cut through the the leg just a quick flash of it fun little goof there yeah it's a gaff i like that this is the scene where Helen's talking to Lou from the, the scene earlier in the movie. This is that dude who was the, the vaudeville performer. I think he's like the manager of the, like the GM of the place. She's explaining to him brain patterns, like when you sleep versus when you're awake. You know, he's got an investment in the creature. He, you know, it seems like he, he kind of runs the place. So he's like, you know, what are you doing to the creature? Like, what are you doing to my attraction? What are all those things hooked up to him? Like, what is this? What, what is, what's science all about? So Helen is like, oh, you know, well, he's asleep and we're going to measure his heart rate and his brain waves and all that kind of stuff. And the guy goes, well, my dear, everyone knows that when you're asleep, the brain stops working. And she goes with 
no ounce of irony. She's completely serious. She goes, the brain waves become irregular, like those of the insane. And then he <laughs> goes, you mean I'm crazy when I'm asleep? And she goes, no more so than when you're awake. Okay. Now, <laughs> I understand that that was played for joke, but yes. it's presented as real science right like she it's like it's a joke at the benefit of sort of like a fact okay so like the idea is like let's tell them a scientific fact but like let's also give them a bit of a punchline about it too you know but right. it's not true the brain isn't dead when we're asleep or whatever he said i had to rewind that two or three times i had to take pictures of the screen i'm gonna post that shit on twitter one day i i just i love it so once they've collected all their data they go back to the lab one of the things that they do here is compare the gilman blood they have a sample of his blood to a blood sample from a shark and yeah. they're going to do some tests to, to compare those now there's a, a scientist in the scene the one who withdraws blood from the shark that's rico browning oh cool all right nice he doesn't say anything he just withdraws the blood and then squirts the sample into the tube and onto the slide there's a nice couple of shots of them just doing science putting stuff on little tabs and like looking into the scopes and beakers burning and things it's like quick but they're doing science and one of the more interesting things that's revealed here is that the blood sample from the gill man is mm -hmm. remarkably close to human blood and much unlike the shark blood. Right. It's close, but not quite human. You say they've done like all these tests and they're like, oh, it's something else. You know, they were hoping, I guess, to prove that it was some kind of human thing, but like it's not. It's not, but I think that the suggestion definitely is that this gill man has a lot in common with human biology. I wish they would say it more because I really love the idea that this is like the missing link, right? Like the idea that it's the thing between us swimming and us on land we did right. both and this is an example of that and like i just yeah i wish they called him that a bit more throughout the movie or at least referred to that concept more next scene we have cleet and helen at the beach enjoying some downtime aside from being cock blocked by chris cleet's you know he's still trying to to get his romance on with helen she has a really interesting conversation about you know her future and her goals and yeah. i think that this is incredible dialogue some of it is insane not not her side basically she's talking about like you know she spends all of her time working she wonders like where's all this gonna lead I look at my friends and they all have families and children and they're married and I'm not. And it's like, I love science. Where's it taking me? And Cleet is like, you know, as a man, I'm glad I don't have to make that choice. And I'm like, right. what? And it's like, it's really tough on you gals. But then he says like, I'm not saying that's like right or wrong or anything. It's just, just sucks. Right. He's like, <laughs> you know, and she's like, yeah, I agree. It really sucks. I couldn't believe I was listening to that conversation happen in a movie from 1955. Especially one that's been showing so much like chauvinism throughout. Yes. So I, I love that she's having that conversation with him and expressing a desire to put her career ahead of, you know, the responsibility, quote unquote, of having kids and, and, mm -hmm. and marrying and all that. A rare progressive moment in this movie. It's one of my favorite scenes, even though I don't really care so much about the romance angle. It really supports my claim that Helen might be the best creature from the Black Lagoon heroine. She might be one of the best female characters we get 
like in the For Universal sure. series. And I really love how the scene ends with the dog coming up and like shaking off the water. You know, it ends yes. on like a nice kind of high note, this nice button, like a little bit of a laugh. So like it deflates the entire conversation right there. So following this scene, there's a, a small scene where they're going to go back into the tank to do some more experimentation. And Cleet is concerned about Helen going back into the tank with him. He's concerned for her safety because now he is, I guess you would say by this point, he's in love with her, is feeling a little protective over her. And considering that the Gilman can be unpredictable, he's thinking it might be better for her to not go back in. And of course, she wants nothing to do with that. She's here to study just like he is and she's going to go in. And so she does. And this is like what the third time they've gone in the tank for study. And they've got the bull prod. She's got like a ball on a pole. I don't know what that's supposed to do. I don't know. He's going to grab for it and they're going to yell stop. Just bring the bring more fish in a basket again. This time around, the gill man doesn't listen. Nope. He doesn't give a shit about the bull prod and he grabs Helen. He, he makes a play. Now, I should say that leading up to this scene, there have been moments like in these these little scenes with Clayton and Helen. They're outside the tank, like kind of in the uh, the touristy area where you can like look through the window. And the gill man, he's on the other side of that window, kind of in the background, staring at Helen. So he's building that obsession with her like he did with Kay previously. They go there before and after their date. Like, I don't think we get to see their actual date or anything, but like he goes down to the observation deck to like pick her up and she's looking at the gill man and then they're at that scene we just talked about where he's like i don't want you to go in the tank tomorrow and every time the gill man is like looking right at him through the window like basically like when you put your hands up to the window to get real close to see what's on the other side like he's doing that right in front of him like it's a yeah. little it's a little silly looking but it's also like very creepy that they're just like yeah. completely ignoring the fact that this thing is trying to figure them out or like remember as much of them as possible for like the next time he encounters them. And it all comes to a head here. He grabs Helen. Cleet immediately swims to her rescue. He wrestles with the Gill Man for a little bit. They both manage to break free and escape the tank. As the Gill Man swims after them, the chain finally gives on his ankle. And now the Gill Man is loose. Yeah, he is out and about causing a major panic, like grabbing people and throwing them into the water tank and everything it's full-on jurassic park now and this is the third time joe fights with the gill man third and final fight joe sort of falls in by accident and then they wrestle for a bit we don't get confirmation yet but he dies and it just goes to show how strong and terrifying this creature is because joe never stood a chance like this time like it was like he grabbed him he he immediately drags him down to the bottom of the tank and then proceeds to like slam his head into the concrete ground of the tank or something smothering him against the floor of it he's a goner yeah and he puts up a fight though and i would say for a man who fought the gill man three times and it, it took that many times for him to finally bite the big one not bad not a bad track record. And so now it's like full on 1950s monster movie. You've got your crowd screaming and running away. There's a great shot just before that where the Gilman sort of launches out of the water. And then there's that great reaction shot of a woman like screaming. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My understanding is that when this was shown in 3D, him coming out of the water was one of the more impressive shots in the movie. Oh, man, I want to see this one day. Got to see it in 3D one day. I love how he doesn't go after the little girl and the mom. That's awesome. Because that just goes to show, like, he's not 
inherently aggressive. It's just like these people have done this to him, you know, like they, they basically dragged him out of his home and like put him on display. So like he's only going after the people who deserve it is how it seems. Right. Yeah. So he does have some kind of morality, right? And he flips a car, which is amazing. That's so awesome like with the ease in which he throws that car (laughs) it's so scary yeah he just immediately heads into the ocean question about that is he a freshwater fish or is he a saltwater fish like i you know the black lagoon seems like a freshwater lagoon right like there's you know so i was worried that he was heading to the ocean if he was gonna you know be able to handle the salt and all that kind of stuff as sciencey as this movie is i don't know that it's totally concerned with whether or not a freshwater animal could survive in saltwater yeah, the movie is basically like, oh, it just needs water, like, period. Like, it could start raining, and he wouldn't have to go into the ocean or into a lake for, like, until it stopped raining, you know? Like, think right, about right, that. Right, right. Like, they should do that in the next movie. It should start raining, and then he can just, like, hang out outside all day. So now he's gone, and we get another one of those great, like, newspaper headline montages. It's been so long, Dan. I feel like it's been forever. Read them off. We get the spinning newspapers. We get the flying newspapers. We get, like, the... Uh, Um, printing press going crazy in the background, right? Like, it just keeps running off newspapers. It's it's fantastic. So we got prehistoric monster on the loose, cars overturned, hundreds panicked by Gilman. Gilman kills guards, escapes from Oceanarium, disappears into ocean. Gilman at Norfolk, prehistoric monster seen offshore. Gilman reported near Miami, women and children warned from beaches. Navy hunting Gilman, Coast Guard patrolling beaches. Yes, the Navy is hunting the Gilman. So now it's reached a point where like nobody really knows for sure where he is. He's out in the open sea. He's being quote unquote spotted as far as like Norfolk, Virginia. We learn maybe even as far as like Panama. All these reports coming in from like other parts of the world. Cleet and Helen kind of assume that he's gone for good. That's a mistake. They should really be more alert and and like on guard for the rest of the movie. But it feels, and this is gonna, you know, this is because of the times we live in. But it feels like they're living in the pandemic and they don't want to like shelter in place. Oh sure. There's a Gilman out, and they're like, ah, let's go to Jacksonville and like let's hit a nightclub and like let's just do whatever. Like it's no big deal. It just there might be a prehistoric monster on the loose. That's all. It just gave me such anxiety watching it this time, you know, because I'm like, there should be a curfew. Stay home until this thing is caught. Uh, As we see in the very next sequence, there's like this teenage couple like in their convertible just out in the middle of nowhere, just necking. Oh yeah, I just thought it was Lover's Lane, you know? I thought we were just, we were there now because this is like a drive-in film and this is probably what kids are doing while they're watching it. So one of the two biggest jump scares happens here is that classic hand from the side of the screen. This time it's a cop. So these two kids are interrupted by a cop who pretty much tells them, that, you know, you can't stay here. Get out of here, kids. And so they take off. They drive right past the Star Motel, which is where we know um, Helen and Cleet are staying. We check in with Helen. And okay, so it's 1955. Helen's sitting in front of her vanity here in a robe that is like kind of open. And underneath is her underwear. I was kind of like blown away that this got past the censors. Me too. Right? That seems strange. It goes even further. Yes, it does. Because like we full on see the character like in a robe, like open a door, check outside, leave the door unlocked, go open the bathroom, turn on the shower, and like we don't see her get in the shower, but all this is very suggestive. Yes. 
I was also very surprised like how risque this seemed. And now it's going to sound silly because it's so tame oh, by any yeah. other standards. For what we've been watching, it was like, no, like this seemed like a lot. And then she disrobes in the bathroom and the gill man's just staring at her through the door. <laughs> he is the peeping Tom. It's so true. Like, what the hell? It's a very horny, very provocative scene. I mean, this is the stuff that they were trying to get away from in the first movie, right? Like, they're yes. going to go all in for the rest of this film. So the Gilman enters the motel room and encounters Chris, who goes into defense mode. Unfortunately, it is not enough. But Cleet, in his room, he hears uh, Chris howl and comes running into Helen's room while she's in the shower the two of them end up outside looking for chris and uh that's the second big jump scare of the movie at least for the time period because he's like looking through the yard and her hand comes from behind from the side of the screen onto his shoulder apparently in the 50s that was like the big jump scare oh well it works so well it was so great it does that it wasn't the Gilman and that it was her. And it wasn't even like, I was so not expecting it either. It just felt so natural. And it's like, it almost it almost was shot to the effect of like, why did you jump at that? That's not scary. But like the mood and the atmosphere was set so perfectly. Nowadays, there would be like a stinger sound effect, right? To sort of emphasize that moment. But here in both cases, and these are like only a few minutes apart. There's no such sound to like make you jump out of your seat it's literally just the hand coming from the side of the screen just to quickly go back to the dog thing uh i got a terminator vibe from him where it's like she has the dog around to warn her whenever something weird is about to happen or something weird is going on and then as much as i love the gill man and was on his side because of the treatment the way that they were treating him at the lab and everything he kills the dog so i can't like him anymore Poor doggy. Bye, Chris. We should do a little warning before the show. <laughs> There's a lot of animal cruelty in this movie. I don't think Chris was harmed, but he, yeah, his character is killed in the film here. He should have waited for backup for, for the chimp and the dolphin. So now, assuming that Chris is just like running off chasing a rabbit or something, Helen and Cleet get back to life. Cleet, his time is limited. He's going to be heading back to his own facility, get back to his uh, animal behavior research in his own lab. But they have some more time. They have like another day together. They spend the afternoon out on a boat. First of all, the next day they're like, God, Chris still hasn't shown up. They don't know that the Gill Man ate Chris. Like they're never going to find the body. It's always just going to be wondered to them what happened to that dog they get on the boat they're going to jacksonville maybe to visit another institute or something i don't know there was some business about let's go to jacksonville for a while and like they had to take the boat up there to take the porpoise three to jacksonville and they're just completely unconcerned about the gill man even though their dog is now missing and they should try and put two and two together right they're very casual about all of it which is strange to me but yeah so now they're out on this boat they're dancing they kiss a little bit like their romance is coming to fruition here they talk about cleat has like a three-month trip he has to go on for research and how much he's gonna miss him and it's all a little too sugary for my taste the whole time the gill man we cut to him and he's like following the boat you know yes. he's like chasing them wherever they're going they 
run into some kind of like engine trouble. I don't know what it is. They ask the guy, like the captain, like what's going on? And he's like, I can't find anything wrong, but it's just not working. So they go and they like recreate part of the first movie when they just like go swimming for a while. And this is where like the creature has caught up to them and he's kind of swimming with them, but they don't notice. And they're trying to like recreate that moment from the first movie where the woman's swimming by herself, but the water is way too shallow for them to pull this off, right? And like, like, yeah. you would definitely sense this creature right there and all that. You know, they did, like, he pulls at her leg and played it off, like, you know, that it was cleat, and that worked fine enough. But everything else with the creature swimming, I was like, how don't you... You are looking down as you swim, and he is looking right up at you. See that thing. Like, I get what they were doing. I just wish they hadn't done it because they had already done it perfectly the first time. This is like that moment in the Temple of Doom when Indy reaches for his pistol and it's not there. Oh, right. Like, I'm going to do the thing I did in the last movie. Yeah. I'm just going to shoot you. And then it's like, well, can't do that this time. We don't need to call back to that sequence in the original film. And it's so contrived, too, because, like, it's just to do that scene. And then the guy's like, I got the boat fixed. Time to go again. And they're like, yes. all right. Yeah, it doesn't really need to be in this movie. If they cut it out, this movie could have been like 75 minutes oh it would have been it would have been great it's such a lean mean monster at that point too we get through this sequence and that night helen and cleat decide the last thing they're going to do their last night together is hang out at this dockside restaurant club kind of thing called the lobster house yeah, I like this stuff. And I thought it was kind of cool where he's like, I only have till midnight. It's kind of like a Cinderella thing. And they're like, let's just stay up till midnight and then I'll take off, you know, and like, I'll be back and like, we can resume this relationship. I thought that was kind of funny. They're like, you know, why even go to bed tonight? Like, let's, let's just hang out. And they have a weird conversation about how as scientists, they're capable of understanding all sorts of complex ideas and theories and, and whatnot, but they just don't have the capability ability to understand things like love like the the quote-unquote like important thing you know what i say to that dan except mystery all right love is a mystery you just have to accept you go trying to explain that shit and you're gonna lose your mind maybe that's what they're getting at as a scientist they have to turn it off once in a while and just go with their feelings instead of trying to explain everything and maybe that's a that's a thing about the gill man too it's like some mysteries aren't worth trying to figure out like let's just accept that this thing's a a miracle i mean is there a word for a bad miracle maybe this is what it is we should call it jean jacket so cleat actually kind of makes that argument that maybe it's better for us to not really understand it so this is all taking place outside they go outside for some air after this conversation they go back in to enjoy the party and the music in this scene fun fact composed by henry mancini I thought it was also cool how like they're having this conversation and, and we're constantly cutting to the creature like listening in and overhearing and doing his like creepy creature crawl and all that like it's really cool how he's overhearing this and, and he's getting ready it's like it, it gives you a real good sense of tension to keep cutting back to this guy yes so as they're enjoying the band, yeah, we, we keep cutting back to the gill man who's shambling in towards the door. I love the moment when he like enters the door frame and like the drummer kind of like looks over and gets a glimpse of him. As soon as that happens, everybody starts to panic. The gill man grabs Helen, dives right into the water. It's an incredible stunt. That was so cool. I, I loved how, whether it be Laurie Nelson or not, when they were going into the water, she went into like a diving pose. I love to think that the character was quick thinking enough to like do that right it was like oh no i'm falling into the water 
dive. Yeah, that was her her double. She did have a double for some of the swimming, but that was actually John Agar diving into the water after her. This is where we get that great buoy sequence where the gill man like swims out to the buoy. She's climbing up it. He drags her back down to the water. We get the people in the boat that just see it and start screaming. We get that yes. scene also. Yeah, this is really thrilling stuff actually you know when Cleet he swims out to the buoy but he's too late and he lost her and the police boat comes and picks him up like it's all very good energy to all of this stuff I like it yeah from here on out I mean we only have about another 10 minutes left in the movie it's it's pretty breakneck pace one thing after another once Cleet's in the police boat they're scanning the water and the, the, the coastal area for any signs of Helen or the Gilman. the police chief starts to like rally the men to get them assembled so dude this i thought was so funny because it's just like shows how far we've come right there's a quick scene before this we got to talk about with the two guys contemplating dropping out of school but like when the police and cleat are kind of like rallying the troops and everything they're like handing out flashlights right and they're testing the flashlights and i was like oh those are the new torches like (laughs) it's a mob but instead of torches they have flashlights you know and they're all cops so they have their guns and stuff but i was like that's really fun like to think of it like that it's like we're we're right back where we started like nothing's changed really like it's a it's an unruly mob i had the exact same thought we had our frankenstein mob finally in a creature from the black lagoon movie but uh yes just before that we have these two kids who are contemplating dropping out of school and they spot helen uh unconscious laying on the beach they pull over they run to her rescue and the gill man pops out of the side uh out of the background i love that moment where he's about to grab the one guy and then he like stoops down and then gets thrown into a tree amazing stunt so like what is that about because like i've never seen anything like that in a movie this old where it's it's definitely like a wire stunt or some kind of yes. stunt because the gill man throws the guy and like he hovers in the air across the entire frame and hits a tree and it's like an inhuman throw you know it's like a superhero throw like something you'd see in the x-men you could sort of see him swing toward the tree it's not a perfect effect but it, it works i guess it, oh it does it ever like i think it's amazing <laughs> like i want more of that stuff like that's like the car flip you know that's the kind of thing i think that they didn't get across well enough in the first movie was how super strong this thing is like a superhuman strength and and i also love what i think the movie's trying to tell us about like staying in school because these kids were like talking about ah who needs school i think i'm gonna drop out and all this and then they get murdered so it's like stay in school or else you're gonna die <laughs> <laughs> that's clever i didn't think about that you could be onto something there because you know kids came to see this movie so the police find the bodies of these two kids i think they start to realize or, or at least cleat starts to realize the guilt man can only stay on land for a few minutes at a time he has to get back into the water so cleat sort of figures out what's happening is that he will travel on land with helen as far as he can he will set her down when he has to get back into the water to charge back up i guess or whatever we want to characterize it and then he comes back for her to continue carrying her down that stretch of beach they realize that their potential search area is a lot more narrow than they thought it was. And so now we've got all of the cops. Like you said, they pass out all the torches. We've got our angry mob, except these are all cops, not just townspeople. And they're on the lookout. They're going to do like this whole manhunt looking for Helen along the coast. I thought this was really cool. You know, we see the footprints in the sand, so they know that's what he's doing, right? They know he's traveling on land. It's not just like a guess, right? It's not just an educated guess. It all makes sense here at the end. Like, 
I know it's still going to wrap up too quickly like they usually do for my liking, but at least like this is all making sense here and we're not jumping to like any kind of crazy leaps of logic here. It's like actually following what I think for the most part is like like a very straightforward path. The search party idea, I, I like the way that it's utilized in this film. Yes, I agree. It feels organic here, maybe because we haven't seen it in a, in a little while. It makes sense here. I'm more conflicted than usual at the end of this particular movie because, of course, I want them to find Helen safe, okay? But, like, with the monster, you know, I'm always going so back and forth. Like, if they never brought him here, this never would have happened, and he never would have killed any humans. They never would have shocked him with the cattle prod. He never would have killed a dog. I want to like everybody in the movie, but everyone's done bad things. Everyone kind of deserves what they get in a weird way. Like, I don't know that I've ever really felt that way at the end of one of these movies before where it's like i don't know who's good here who's left and who's good yeah that's interesting if they just hadn't had the gilman kill the dog then we'd be on his side until the end yeah because helen was right there in the water with the cattle prod you know so like as much as i love her as a character like she still like did that terrible thing final scene here a couple of these guys from the law enforcement posse here had this giant spotlight right they locate helen's body on the beach just as the gilman emerges from the water and so everyone descends onto this one area the gilman sensing the danger grabs helen and heads into the water but cleat manages to distract him briefly well he uses their conditioning it works like he yells the word stop he tries the command the damn gilman stops <laughs> it actually worked <laughs> yeah just long enough for helen to like calmly get to safety right and then that's when the police just open fire oh yeah they just blow the hell out of him the movie ends actually with the same shot from the original creature his lifeless body just sinks down further into the water i couldn't believe is like the exact same ending where like they pump him full of lead and then he just sinks to the bottom of the water again <laughs> like there's like no mystical magical like supernatural way to deal with this guy you just gotta just blow him away with a shotgun it doesn't have to be a silver bullet you don't have to dip it in holy water it's just like if you got a machete chop his head off that'll do it i don't know just like (laughs) kill it by any natural means (laughs) curious to see how they end the third creature movie it's been quite a while since i've watched it so i'll essentially be watching it again for the first time same yeah we'll see how that one ends hopefully there's a different ending but uh yeah so that's the end of revenge of the creature wild ride a lot of weird choices in this one overall like i said i end up enjoying this one because it's a creature from the black lagoon movie there's always something to find to enjoy in one of those maybe my favorite creature heroine i think i might like her more than k yep those are my final thoughts on Revenge of the Creature. What do you say? This one was way better than I remembered or was expecting it to be. Maybe when I remembered that it was like Jaws 3, full on, just like the last act of King Kong for the whole movie. Bring the creature to civilization and he goes nuts, he runs amok, and that's the lesson. Don't do that kind of stuff. Like, leave things where they are, that's where they belong. I don't think it's especially well made. Like, you know, there's holes in it. Like, you can see the seams literally in the costume sometimes. It's got insane dialogue. It's got crazy ideas about things, but it's also got like a lot of cool ideas about things. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Like, I like how conflicted I am about the characters. Like, they feel more real than most of the characters we get because, like, by what they're saying, I'm like, I'm on their side. They're scientific. They're being scientists. But then by their actions, I'm against them. The way that you're like doing your work is uh, very troubling. So, there's a lot going on in this one that I wasn't expected. And, like, yeah, I just, I'm a sucker for that whole 
Jurassic Park concept of the amusement park just turning against the patrons and like going wild. And I think it works really well here. Yeah, the first one is an amazing movie, you know, like just conceptually everything about that works. This one, for the most part, like I I still have a lot of fun. I don't think everyone's going to like it as much as I do because, you know, we're enthusiasts and shit like that. But like, I still think there's a lot of fun stuff here and it's still a good time. So yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, this one feels more like other sci-fi B-movies of the 50s, whereas the original Creature from the Black Lagoon feels like an A picture. You know what I mean? This one, feel, like you said at the top, feels a little cheaper, relies more on tropes a little bit. It's more standard fare for the decade. Uh, still fun. You know, it's still the Gill Man, and it's hard not to have fun when you're watching one of those. So, Well, with that, I think it's time for us to dive back down into the briny deep, but we'll be back on Friday, April 28th to discuss our final Abbott and Costello horror comedy, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. But before we go, we do have one listener email. All right. So this is a follow-up to an email we we got last time. We heard from someone named Lester. He wrote about this um, 48-hour like Universal Monster Marathon, I think it was, or a 48-hour Halloween marathon that included a lot of Universal Monster movies and a bunch of Hammer films as well. And so Lester says, Hi again, Dan and Mike. Thanks for reading my last email. Since your show comes out once a month, I wanted to drop another quick note. Promise I'm not email bombing you. Well, maybe a little bit. Never fear, Lester. It's okay. We love reading these emails, so feel free to send in as many as you like. Just to add, I didn't watch that whole 48-hour Halloween marathon. That would have been a stellar feat. The Universal Universal monster movies were great, and so were the Hammer horrors. Some of those sets have this European gothic look, creating a very spooky atmosphere. There's one Hammer movie which has the most awesome windmill scene ever, perhaps an homage to the end of Frankenstein. Do you guys have any favorite Hammer horrors? I really enjoyed any that had Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Go ahead, Mike. I'll let you take the lead on this one. Unfortunately, I've not watched them all yet i know that they just came out with a really good box set like a year or so ago that's very affordable that i that i very much would like to own and watch i mean it's no it's no secret i'd like to cover a lot of them on this show someday of the ones i saw i think my favorite one that i saw was one of the mummy ones if i'm not mistaken it's a really kick-ass mummy movie but i just can't tell you exactly like was there more than one dan do you have by any chance do you have a list up or anything like that i just remember the hammer horror mummy movie being fantastic it's not that i don't like the other stuff i haven't seen a lot of the dracula i watched all the frankenstein stuff and it's cool but but it struck me as being kind of a little slower than i was expecting and maybe maybe a little like sillier than i was expecting this was a while ago but from what i've seen the mummy was fantastic i'm no expert on hammer horror but i have seen a bunch of them and to my knowledge there's only one the mummy okay just the one with uh, christopher lee as the mummy it's essentially like a remake of the original the story is the same as the original mummy with karloff but christopher lee spends more of the movie as a mummy kind of like the Chorus movies. Unless I'm totally mistaken, it might be a Chorus story. But it essentially takes the same plot beats where it was about a forbidden love that happened centuries ago and then the mummy was like sort of cursed to protect that princess's tomb forever. And Yeah, this is kind of why I would really like to get to the Hammers eventually on this show because there's a lot that I don't know and I would love to, to explore them a little bit further. But for me, if we're going to stay within these characters, I actually really like the Hammers 
Hammer Frankenstein movies in the way that they just go full tilt. Dr. Frankenstein is a villain. You know, he's a real bastard in those movies. And I love that portrayal of him. And I love Christopher Lee's Frankenstein monster. Like when I saw the original design the first time, I really wasn't all that crazy about it. But then I watched the movie and uh, it just works. In context, I didn't have any issues with it whatsoever. And I actually really like it now. So I would definitely say that the Hammer Frankensteins are high on my list. But non-monster hammers, I would probably say that Paranoiac is one of my favorites. That one's got Oliver Reed in it. It's more suspenseful family drama. Lester's email continues. Hearing from past shows, you guys are fans of comic books. Ahem, excuse me, graphic novels. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. It's all comics. <laughs> he says, I recently read Lon Chaney Speaks, which was all about the life and career of Lon Chaney Sr. My next one to read is Lugosi, The Rise and Fall of Hollywood's Dracula, because it's Bella. Have you read any comics related to the Universal Monster films? trying to think so i have a collection of the marvel frankenstein comics i haven't read that yet but unfortunately i don't have like a lot of horror comics you know what was really good is uh mike mignola drew a adaptation of bram stoker's dracula by francis ford coppola he he adapted that movie into a comic that is beautiful i would definitely recommend that I don't have a ton of comic experience with these characters. Myself, I imagine you probably have more than I do. I haven't really regularly read comics in quite some time, but uh, I do remember reading issues of like the Tomb of Dracula. I know Werewolf by Night is not like the Wolfman, but it's, it's a Wolfman story. I haven't read as many comics as I would have liked. I would like to learn more about those, to be honest with you. So if you're listening and you have suggestions, either tweet us or uh, send us an email, themonstersthatmadeus at gmail.com. Send us your recommendations. I would love to explore some more monster comics. Yeah, one thing I'm really looking forward to with uh, like James Gunn's announcement with the DCU is that they're going to have a heavy focus on monsters. You know, it's going right. to be like equal parts monsters and superheroes. So like that's that's very cool. I'm I'm I was glad to hear that, and so I'm looking forward to you know who plays Frankenstein's monster in the DC universe. <laughs> is he going to team up with Batman one day? That would be incredible <laughs> <laughs> that would be super cool okay his email continues a little bit further i sort of addressed this on twitter already because by the time this releases this will have happened already but finally tying this around if you happen to be in manhattan in march lincoln center is showing a series for todd browning's films i think a chance to see dracula in 35 millimeter is a must see they are also showing mark of the vampire which also stars bela i've included the link if you're interested it'll be long gone by the time this episode releases i believe i did tweet about it today so hopefully some people saw that and hope hopefully go to see uh, some of Todd Browning's films. I've not seen Dracula in 35 millimeter, but I have seen it projected uh, on a big screen. I went to a um, fathom event. TCM did a screening where they did Dracula and then they did the Spanish Dracula back to back. So that was really cool. And I wish that I lived closer to New York and had spare time for this because uh, a Todd Browning like film fest sounds right up my alley, but Lester finishes saying, looking forward to you guys covering the Creature series. Creature from the Black Lagoon is definitely up there for me. I find myself getting lost just watching the underwater scenes. A lot of fun. Take care, Lester. He sent us this email right before our Creature from the Black Lagoon 
episode dropped, so we didn't get a chance to read this email for that episode. But of course, we've started Creature from the Black Lagoon. Hope you're enjoying the episodes as much as we are making them. All right. Well, that's it for emails. You can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And as I mentioned before, you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and you can find all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Please do that. It helps other people discover the show and it helps us know what you guys are enjoying or not enjoying. Hopefully you're enjoying everything. You know, we love knowing that you guys are enjoying it. So, so please get on iTunes and leave us that five-star review, please. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody